Genesis chapter 42. So let me invite you to turn in your Bibles there to Genesis chapter 42. If you've been around church for a while, been around the Word of God, you know the rest of the story, how it all turns out that Joseph veils his identity to his brothers as they come back to get food for their, themselves and their family. And uh, it appears as if Joseph is just kind of sticking, sticking it to them. It's kind of his way of getting back at them. And if we think about it, the way that Joseph's been treated, we kind of understand that point of view. Because uh, his brothers were not that good of a, a group of young men. Or by this time, they're in their 40s probably. Reuben committed fornication with his father's wife and disqualified himself from the blessing and the birthright. Simeon and Levi slaughtered a whole city in order to take revenge upon the sin that was committed against their sister, Tamar. Judah impregnated... uh, uh, Not Tamar, that was... uh, Help me out. Dinah, thank you. Yes, Dinah. Simeon and Levi are are trying to bring retribution for the sin against Dinah. And then Judah impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And, of course, all ten of them were involved, the ten older brothers, that is, were all involved in the disposal of Joseph. Um, And so, if Joseph is bringing back revenge upon his brothers, then we can appreciate that. But that's not what this passage is about. That's not what the rest of Genesis is about. It's not about... Joseph getting back at his brothers. This is about God preparing Joseph's brothers for a future position of leadership. Beginning here in chapter 20, or 42, you're going to see Joseph's brothers in a different light than you saw them before. We've seen them as mostly evil and self-centered and self-absorbed and impulsive. But here you're going to see them as careful thoughtful, full of grace, uh, concerned about Joseph and their father, concerned about particularly their father and and their younger brother, Benjamin. That's how you're going to see them. And it seems as if here in chapter 42, they begin to turn a corner spiritually. And this is when God can really use them, when they've acknowledged their former past sins and started to turn from them. And this is what's going on here. In chapter 42. Let me read the entire chapter. Genesis chapter 42. This is the Word of God. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. And then the ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I'm afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. 
But Joseph had recognized his brother, brothers, although they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You are spies. You've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. And yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. And Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men... Let one of your brothers be confined in your prisons. But as for the rest of you, go, carry the grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. And then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them saying, Did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money. And behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. And then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive, and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Now it came about, as they were emptying their sacks, that, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and you would take Benjamin... All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, You may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, 
and you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Joseph is being used here as a servant of God to provide a test for his brothers. To see if his brothers are able to pass this test. The occasion for the test is in verse 5. Joseph actually is really... Um, this test is, is presented to him. The opportunity for the test is presented to him. That is, Joseph doesn't seek out his brothers, go to their hometown and create this test. No, God brings them to Joseph. And we should see here that this is God behind it. That God is the one who's summoning them to Joseph, bringing them to Joseph. And so Jacob sends the ten oldest down to Egypt, but he doesn't allow Benjamin to go. And so what we have here is God sending them down to Egypt. Why? Because God was the one who brought about the famine that forced them to have to go to Egypt where all the food was. Jacob heard the report that there was food there. And so, God is the one who sent them down there. But we also need to see that Joseph recognized that there was something much bigger than the family reunion at stake here. What Joseph could have done here was, these are my brothers. Now I can, I can join in, in uh, the relationship that we once had. But Joseph recognized something bigger here. Turn back to chapter 37, verses 9 through 11. And I want to show you something that I think is going on in the mind of Joseph. Something that he sees that is not explicitly evident in the text. Unless we look at the larger context, which we want to do right here. Chapter 37, this is Joseph's dream. This is the second dream. Verse 9, Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So, we tend to look at these dreams with the main point of the dream being that Joseph's brothers and here his father will bow down to him, his father and his mother. Uh, that, that they will all bow down to him. And that is the main point of the dream. That is the main point of the revelation from God. Okay, Don't think dream like our dreams. But these are actually direct revelations from God to Joseph. And that is the main point of the dream. But what we can't miss here is something that I, I think Joseph understood. And that was that this imagery used in verses 9 through 11 suggests not only that Joseph will rule over them, but that they as a family will rule over all the earth. And here's why I say that. Notice the imagery that's used. Verse 9, a sun and moon and eleven stars. So, Joseph is a star, his father and mother, sun and moon, and then the other brothers are also stars. Now, stars in the Bible often signify rulership. When you see the word star in your English translation, it, can usually, it usually refers to one of two things. One, actual stars. Okay? Pretty obvious, right? And then the other is rulers. 
For example, in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, a star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from, the, from Israel, and shall crush, crush through the forehead of Moab. A star shall come forth, a ruler, not talking about you know, a, a, a heavenly body that's up uh, millions of light years away. No, we're talking about a ruler here. Satan is called a, the star of the morning in Isaiah chapter 14. Okay? Not talking about literal star, talking about figurative leader. He's a ruler in some capacity. Jesus, of course, in Revelation is called the bright and morning star. In Revelation 1, verse 20, talks about uh, the seven stars that Jesus is walking among the churches. And the seven stars uh, refer to the seven messengers or the seven pastors of the seven churches. And then further we know from Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, that Israel there is personified as a woman who's about to give birth. And when she gives birth, Satan is standing there waiting for the child, the Messiah, to be born. And he wants to kill him right away. But he fails. And so, as a result, he spends all of his time going after the other people of Israel, the other Jews. We saw that in Revelation 12.1. But specifically, what I want to draw your attention to there is that those 12 stars... That woman, Israel, is pictured with 12 stars on her head. And that's how we know it's Israel. And the 12 stars point back to what? This dream right here in Genesis chapter 37, where Joseph and his 12 brothers are referred to as stars. And so you can turn back to chapter 42 because I think Joseph understood from his dreams that these stars meant more than just a picture, but that it meant some sort of ruling capacity, not only for himself, his brothers bowing to him, but actually they, as a family, ruling over the rest of the earth. And the reason I think that is because of verse 9 in chapter 42. Let's start with verse 8. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. And then Moses draws our attention to something. What we just read. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them. He remembered the dreams and then he acts upon them. Verse 10 goes into what he does. He disguises himself and he starts to, to, um, to act as if these men are spies. This is the test. So in order for Joseph to allow these men who have been unfaithful for years and years, in order for them to be in a position of rulership or leadership over the world, as God intends. They need to be first tested. And that, I think, is what's going on here. So God provides the opportunity in verses 1-5, through and Joseph capitalizes on it. And so we have the occasion for the test, and then verses 6-28, through we have the test itself. We have the test itself. Joseph presents an opportunity for them to discard their brother. And you're going to see this throughout the next several chapters, so keep this in mind. Joseph is presenting an opportunity for them to discard one of their brothers. Okay, First, it's going to be Simeon, and then second, it's going to be Benjamin. And he's going to give them multiple opportunities. First thing we need to notice in verse 6 is that his brothers bow down to them, to him. His brothers bow down to him. Now, this is not a complete fulfillment of his dream, his revelation from God, because in his first dream, 
All of his brothers were bowing down to him. So we're missing one here, right? Benjamin's back home. And then it's not a fulfillment of the second dream or revelation because that one was with his father, mother, and all of his brothers. So this is really just a uh, kind of what we could say a foreshadow that that Joseph recognized that this was going to happen at some point, but this wasn't the, the final fulfillment of it. And Joseph recognizes them in verse 8, but they don't recognize him. Isn't that interesting? That they don't recognize their own brother? I mean, don't you think if you hadn't seen your brother in a long time, you would recognize him if you came across him? Well, I think, I think there's several reasons why they didn't recognize him. And I think there are at least six. Number one, notice verse 13. They thought he was dead. They said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with their father, Benjamin, and one is no longer alive. They thought that sometime between the time they sold him into slavery and, to the, and the time he actually made it to wherever his destination was, that he must have been killed. Or that he just died for for um, being abused in some way. The second reason why they didn't recognize him was because they didn't know where the Midianite traders took Joseph. There's no indication in the text that the Midianite traders said, we're going down to Egypt. Okay, so that's the second reason. The third reason is that they wouldn't expect Joseph to be in a place of prominence. When the last time they saw him, he was bound. He was in shackles. They wouldn't expect him to be second in command in all of Egypt, right? Fourth reason is that, look at verse 23. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. Joseph's not talking them and talking to them in their Hebrew language. If he were, maybe that would have been a clue to them. But but he's speaking through an interpreter. Okay, so there's there's this disguise going on. Further, the fifth reason is that at least 20 years have passed. Remember, he was about 17 when he first had those dreams, chapter 37, verse 2. And we know that when he began serving uh, Potiphar, or, or excuse me, Pharaoh, chapter 41, verse 46, he was how old? He was 30 years old. So that's 13 years that have passed. And then, how long was the, the years of abundance before the famine came? How many years? Seven. So 13 and 7, quick math is 20. All right? So if this is at the very beginning of the famine, it could have been a little bit longer. They could have waited it out a little bit. Maybe they, maybe Jacob's family uh, had some of their own resources before they finally went to Egypt. Okay, so this may be, it's at least 20 years, and it could be as many as 22 years. And. Um, Joseph would have recognized them because, one, they were coming from his hometown. He knows what they would look like. And remember, when Joseph left, they were already in their 20s and 30s. And when you get to that age, you don't change a whole lot in 20 years, right? But remember, if Joseph was 17 years old, and he goes from 17 to 37 or 40, those of you who are around that age, is there any difference in your appearance from... Today and seven. Oh, maybe not. Okay. I'm saying those of you who are around 40, Paul. Okay. Um, so, so there's going to be a change in appearance, especially when you go from a teenager to an adult. And so they wouldn't have recognized Joseph. And then the final reason, verse 6, 
is that Joseph's head would have been shaved. Look at chapter 41, verse 34. When Pharaoh finds out about Joseph, it says, Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers. And That's not the one I'm looking for. 41, verse 14. Excuse me. Verse 14. can't even read my typewritten font. Let alone my handwriting. All right. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Now, a Hebrew would wear a full beard and, of course, have their... Uh, full head of hair as well. And so when we think of shave, we think of what we're talking about in American culture as shave. But but you remember, in the, the Egyptian culture, they would shave the entire head, the entire face, and so Joseph would be completely bald. And he would look much like the Egyptian, have all their garb on. And so that's why in chapter 42, verse 8, Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Lots of things go into that. And so in verse 9, Joseph accuses them of being spies. And, of course, they respond, no, we're not. We're honest men, verses 10 and 11. And Joseph says in verse 15, if you're telling the truth, then bring me this younger brother that you're, you've been talking to me about. Now, there's several reasons why Joseph may have done this. Why would Joseph ask for his brother to be brought to him? It could be to um, get even with them. Okay, just to, to put some pressure on them like they had put some pressure on Joseph. Could it be that he simply wanted to see his brother. Or it could be that Joseph wanted to bring his brothers to a place of repentance. And I'll tell you the reason that I think here in just a minute. But, but what Joseph does from here is he imprisons them, verses 16 through 20. Notice his initial plan in verse 16. His initial plan, send one of you that he may get your brother while you all remain confined. Okay, So his initial plan is, I'm going to keep nine of you and send one of you home to get Joseph. So he keeps them in prison. Notice for three days, verse 17. But then he changes his mind in verse 18. He said, verse 19, If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison, but as for the rest of you, go carry the grain for the famine. So his initial plan changes, and I think perhaps the reason for that, and we don't really know for sure, but I think he's actually showing grace to the men. He wants them to be able to take food back. Now, by this time, each of these brothers of his would have families of their own whole household they would have to feed. And if he only had sent one brother back, how much grain could they possibly take for these three generations of people, right? Jacob, the brothers, and their children. And so he graciously sends nine of them back with full loads of grain as well as the money that they had brought. And um, so... So why bring Benjamin back? Why ask for Benjamin to come back? And I think he did it because he, he did want to bring them to a place of repentance. He, he could have gotten If he wanted to get even with them, he could have done it a lot of other ways. He could have treated them harsh, even more harshly than what we see here. He could have, um, he, he could have had them beaten. He could have kept them in prison for longer. Instead, he sends nine of them home full of full of uh, food, their bags full of food, and he sent their money back with them. And he only keeps Simeon. And when he sends the nine brothers away, 
he points their attention to God. And that's why I think he's trying to bring them to a place of repentance. He's wanting to, to trigger in their mind that we have sinned against God, and yet God is protecting us here. Look at verse, um, verse 18. Joseph said to them on the third day after they had been in prison, Do this and live, for I fear God. Kind of a peculiar thing to hear from an Egyptian leader, right? And this may have, uh, should have been a clue to the brothers, but remember, there's a lot of things going on here, a lot of fear and things. But the point is, is that Joseph pointed them back to God. And I think they start to get the point because when they, when they open up their bags, what do they say in verse 28? Look at the end of the verse. What is this that God has done to us? So I think Joseph was doing this on purpose, that he was trying to get them to get their attention off of themselves and back onto God. And the way that that would happen is by uh, bringing about some circumstances that might cause them a little bit of fear. Having their money returned to them. And so that's what happens here. Would they be willing to... Here's the big question for them. Would they be willing to exchange the money now and the food that they have for Simeon's slavery. Okay, Simeon's now kept in Egypt. This is their opportunity to discard one of their brothers like they have already done before, 20 years earlier. This is their opportunity. Now they have their food and they have their money. Well, how are they going to respond? Do they really care about their brother at all? This is really the first test that Joseph gives to see if these people care about their brother. It's going to make it more evident as, as Benjamin comes into the picture, but for now it's just Simeon. And it appears that the text shows us in verses 21 through 28 that this is working, that their consci- consciousness is, be- is, is awakened. It's becoming awakened to what they had done and to their responsibility before God. Verses 21 through 22, they show remorse. Did you see that when we were reading through that? They show remorse for the disposal of Joseph. Twenty years earlier, it comes back to their mind and it's still haunting them. Look at verse 21. Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother Joseph, they're talking about, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. Yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them saying, Did I not tell you do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Their conscience is waking up to the fact that they have sinned not only against Joseph, but they sinned against God. And God's bringing this back upon them. Joseph listens in, verses 23 and 24, and he can't control his emotions. He listens in knowing their language, and so he has to excuse himself in order to weep. Perhaps this was the first time that he had heard that his oldest brother Reuben was willing to save him, tried to save him. This may have been the first time. And because of that, he, Reuben sensed remorse. I wish I would have protected my brother better than I did. And the rest of the brothers appear to have remorse as well. Well, Simeon's held in prison, end of verse 24. Joseph has their sacks filled with grain and their money, verse 25. And, of course, they discover it in verses 26 and 27. And they say, what is this that God 
has done to us. This is not a, hey, what is this that God has done to us? Excited praise here. This is a perplexing fear. What have we done that God would bring this about us? Now we're, not only do we have Simeon gone, but now we stand guilty before before Joseph, second in command. They didn't know it was Joseph, but this, this Egyptian leader. We stand guilty because we have all this food, but we didn't give anything for it. All of our money's back in our bag. And so in that sense, God must have brought this upon us. And so what shall we do? So we have the occasion for the test. We have the test itself. And now in verses 29-38, we have the response to the test. How would they respond? Would they be willing to prove themselves before God and other people? They recount the story to their father in verses 29-35, and the focus is on them being accused. Now they tell the truth to their father, but they leave out some details. Did you notice what they left out? They left out verses 21 through 22. What was 21 and 22 about, remember? When they recounted how they should not have done what they did to Joseph. They didn't tell their father about that. They continued to allow him to be led to believe that that his son was dead. This wasn't the time they thought in their minds to, to tell them, but clearly that had pricked their conscience. And if they had told Jacob, think about it this way, if they had told Jacob that they were the ones who sold Joseph into slavery, you think Jacob would have allowed them to take Benjamin now? This is the only way they're going to get Simeon back, is if they can take Benjamin with them. They tell him about what took place. Verse 35, they tell him about the money that was returned to them. And in verses 36 through 38, Jacob says, You are not taking Benjamin with you. And it appears that Jacob had a little bit of suspicion about these sons of his, about what really happened to Joseph. Now, he didn't know all the details. All he knew was that they brought Joseph's coat to, them, to him, ripped up, torn, and full of blood. But he didn't know exactly what happened. He just I think he had a suspicion. The reason I say that is because of these last three verses. Verse 36, Their father Jacob said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. And here are the three children, or two children that you've bereaved me of and the one that you're about to. Joseph is no more. Basically saying, You have some culpability for that. Second, Simeon now is no more. He's as good as dead in the Egyptian prison. And now you would take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Jacob says, I don't know what took place, but it seems like you had a hand in Joseph's death. And you're not going to bereave me of another child. That's what he says at the end of verse 38. Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Reuben does something very valiant. He offers in verse 37 his two sons as a sacrifice, saying, If we don't bring Benjamin back, then you can take my two sons and you can kill them. In other words, let what should happen to uh, let what happens to Benjamin 
happened to my two sons. I'm going to offer them up to you as security that I will bring Benjamin back. It will happen. So in the larger narrative, God was bringing the people of Israel to Egypt so that they could grow and be oppressed later by the Egyptians when another Egyptian uh, pharaoh came about who did not know God, Exodus chapter 1. And then God would free those this great large group of people that was uh, threatening to overtake the Egyptian population. Okay, Moses would bring them out of there. God's greatest act in the Old Testament, really. So if that's the larger picture, what is Joseph doing here? I mean, how could Joseph be so unloving to his brothers? If Joseph really loved his brothers, why would he treat them this way? I mean, wouldn't the loving thing to do for Joseph be, Hello, I'm Joseph. Come here, let me shower you with gifts. And how heartless can a person be? But I would suggest to you that Joseph did love them. He loved them enough to do what was best for them. And that was to point them to the truth. To give them a test that would expose their hearts. See, this passage is not, and these next several chapters are not about revenge. You did this to me, I'm going to do this to you. This was not about sticking it to them or making them get the same feeling that he had. I felt lonely. I felt mistreated. I was betrayed. Now you're going to feel what I felt. Joseph recognized something very important. That what was at stake here with their coming leadership was God and His reputation. And Joseph was not willing to sacrifice God and His reputation at the altar of their instant pleasure, their instant gratification, which He could have given them. If they were going to come to a capacity of leadership like God had revealed to him in Genesis chapter 37, then they first needed to pass the test of faithfulness. If they were going to survive the famine, they were going to be able to bring their families to a place where they would live in a foreign land and where they would rule. They would need to be shown their sin and they would need an opportunity to repent. Joseph understood this. Think about how cold their hearts were before this test. Let's just think, okay, 20 years earlier or even leading up to that. Before Joseph was sold to the Midianites, what does it say in verse 21? It says that Joseph begged for mercy. Do you see that? Be- middle of the verse. Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, don't do this. You could almost see him as he's being bound and carried away that Joseph is crying out to his brothers, please someone stand up for me. I mean, how heartless are these men? How unfaithful to their own blood relative. And their heartlessness is seen further. Their cold hearts are seen when they led their father to believe that Joseph was dead. And when, jo- when, when Jacob responds with mourning, it doesn't seem like they, it has any effect on them. You don't see them breaking down and going, 
can't believe we did this to our father. We better tell him the truth. So, Jacob or, or Joseph's plea for mercy as he's being led away didn't prick their conscience. Jacob's tears and days and weeks of mourning didn't prick their conscience. But amazingly, God has been working in their hearts and God works in their heart through Joseph. Verse 21. This does prick their conscience. Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we did not listen. The first step to faithfulness is being honest about our past unfaithfulness. If Joseph's brothers will do this, God can work through them. God has been working through them. They're, they need to see their guilt. They need to, re, they need to repent. They have to have an opportunity to show themselves as faithful. But it would not come easy for them. There would be several days and weeks, and, and actually I think it's going to be at least a year, perhaps two, where they're filled with angst. Left, separated from Simeon having to bring a bigger burden upon their father, trying to convince him to, bring, to let them bring Benjamin back. It's not going to be easy. This is a severe test, and it's going to get harder, as you're going to see in the next couple of weeks. And, by the way, they would never reach a state of perfection, would they? They would never get to the place where they were, where their past was wiped away completely. Right When Jacob blesses his sons, he passes over Reuben for his sin. He passes over Simeon and Levi for his sin. And the blessing goes to Judah. He would be the Messianic ruler. He would be the one who brought about the Messianic ruler through his line. This passage is not about revenge. This passage is about grace. God is graciously revealing their sin to them so that they can see the seriousness of it and the need to turn from it. See, God is not in the business of bringing up dirty laundry. Okay? He doesn't want to smear our faces in our past sin. That's not the way God is. But if we still have not repented from that past sin, the most loving thing that He can do is to remind us about it. Get us to acknowledge our guilt and to turn from it. That's the most loving thing He can do. We can ignore it all we want. We can say it's done, it's over with, I've moved on. But have we? Have we recognized how we have defied Him in our sin? And have we looked for him for grace, to him for grace? We, like Joseph's brothers, will never be equipped for a life of faithfulness until we first are honest with our past faithfulness. Christian, have you been reminded about your past sin? Have you already turned from it? Has it has it been paid for? Has it been atoned for? I don't mean through 
positive acts of righteousness. Okay, I, I, I say this all the time, but pot, piling up all these great things that we've done, that's not what I'm talking about. Has it been atoned for through the blood of Christ? We have our sins atoned for by looking to Christ. We recognize the ugliness of our sin and we, we recognize that before God, He's not trying to, to rub our faces in it. Rather, He's trying to, to show us the weight of it and that, that we've been holding on to this sin, not wanting to turn from it. And believers respond with seeing when they're reminded, like Joseph's brothers are here, reminded of their sin, they, they see the ugliness of it, and, but also recognize that Christ has already paid for it in full. That when Christ died for you, He died for all of the sins that you would commit because He died before you were born. Okay, So that means when you come to Christ, when you finally come to a saving faith, He died for your past sins from the time you were young till the time of your salvation. But He also dies for your future sins, does He not? Or He already did. It's already paid for. All of that's paid for. So not not suggesting that okay, God is only or Christ is only paying for a certain part of your sins, only the ones that we have turned from. What I am suggesting is that when it comes to the Christian life, God often brings us back to a place where we haven't matured. That is, if we haven't figured it out with this sin, then it's going to keep coming back until we acknowledge it and turn from it. And there'll never be a time when you get full victory over sin that you will... And I never have to worry about that sin anymore. If you think you're at that place, be careful that you don't fall. First Corinthians 10.12 but, but I think He lovingly points us to our sin, the ones that we keep failing at. He does that because He loves us. And the most loving thing God can do to us is to point us to our sin and our continual need to look to Christ. I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. I try all these different ways. I've tried all of these processes and, and none of them seem to work. And what God is doing to you by reminding you of your sin is not rubbing your face in it, not bringing revenge upon you. Okay, all that all that punishment has already been paid for in the cross. He's trying to lovingly bring you to a place where you see your need to turn to Christ alone. I can't do this on my own. I need to look to Christ. So Joseph is an instrument in God's hand, I think, to do something it was very loving to his brothers to help them to see their guilt and give them an opportunity to show their faithfulness because the first step to being uh, being used in a position of faithfulness is recognizing your unfaithfulness in the past that hasn't been addressed. And so that's what needs to happen here. Joseph is going to make this test more severe for them in the coming chapters and you're going to see that they actually passed the test and God does use them in a place of leadership and uses their children to to lead uh, the nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for uh, the truth that we know and love and think about often. And that is that 
Jesus Christ paid all for all of our sins. That they that our sins are paid in full. So we don't have to go back to trying to make atonement for our own sins. Help us understand what's going on here. I, I perhaps didn't explain it in the best way. I pray that you'd use your spirit to help solidify what the truth of your word is, and that is that you need to prepare us for a position of faithfulness by pointing us to our sin that has not been turned to. Maybe the sins that keep coming back, the sins we keep failing at, and we, or we each have them. And it seems impossible, really, at times, when we think about our own sin. How can we possibly ever get past this? But we're thankful that you point us to our sin because if we didn't see, if we were self-deceived, if we were blinded by our sin, we'd be in big trouble. Because we wouldn't be looking to Jesus Christ. We wouldn't be looking to Him for help. We'd be looking to ourselves and just trying to cover over the consequences of our sin rather than dealing with the root problem. And I pray that you would help me and help each person here be able to see the sin that that we have sinned against you for what it is and to respond rightly. Lord, I thank you that you're not a vindictive God, that you're a loving, gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love, and that you point us to Jesus Christ and and you show us the way. If we ever doubt that, we can look at the cross that bought our salvation. Thank You for Your love for us. Thank You for pointing out our sin. We pray that You would plant this truth deep in our hearts and do bring to the surface the sins that we have ignored or hidden from You, tried to hide from You. We know that nothing is hidden from You. Bring them to the surface so that we can see them and respond to them with repentance and faith in our Redeemer. We pray in His name. Amen.